0: Well, good morning again. Uh, As always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. We come now to that living and abiding Word of God. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 2 if you have a Bible with you? Matthew chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 13. We're continuing our series this morning in the Gospel according to Matthew. And last week, we saw the first half of chapter 2, and we saw these magi, these pagan astrologers from the east that saw a star rise, and so they came to visit the newborn king. And remember, we saw those four different groups of people. We saw Herod, the people of Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes, and then the magi, and all of their responses to Jesus. And in Herod's response, we saw that he was troubled, About this newborn king of the Jews. And so he began scheming to try to destroy him. And today we're going to see the horrible result of that scheming of Herod. But the very last verse we read last week told us that the Magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod so that he would not be able to find the Christ. And So this week, we're going to see all the ways, not just that Herod schemes to destroy Jesus, but that God protects Jesus and protects him from the schemes of the evil one. And that Matthew sees in all of these things the way that Jesus fulfills the role of God's people throughout the Old Testament. As we see all of this, it's not going to be easy This is the gospel of Jesus. Gospel means good news, but we see today that in the midst of the greatest news in the history of the world, there is also great sadness and sorrow. And so as we wrestle with those things, we're going to talk about how God directs us to respond as Christians. That Christians are those who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, until the next time that our King returns to earth and wipes away our sorrow. So, as we hear all of those things from the Lord, would you ask for his help with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now when they, that's the Magi, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, "'Rise!' a Nazarene this is the word of the lord as we look through this passage today we're going to see three things first we're going to see this theme of fulfillment that we've talked about for the last few weeks and comes to bear throughout this passage but we're going to see especially in verses 13 to 15 and then we're going to look at verses 16 through 18 and see the lamentation that comes from this horrible tragedy. And then thirdly, we're going to see in verses 19 through 23 the protection that the Lord gives to Jesus. The first thing that we're going to learn from the Lord today is that Jesus is the fulfillment or the completion of all that has come before Him. Specifically today, we're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's life in the Old Testament. I told you for the past couple weeks that we're going to take a closer look at this theme of fulfillment in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're doing that today. Matthew has used the term fulfill or fulfilled four times now already in this Gospel, and he's going to use it 15 total times throughout the book. In this passage, each of these three sections ends with Matthew saying, now this happened to fulfill, and then he quotes an Old Testament prophet or an idea from the prophets. And so the the whole section has this pattern of, here's this thing that happened in the life of Jesus, and it happened to fulfill this expectation that was set down before Jesus came. We see Matthew quoting the prophet Hosea in verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. And he quotes Jeremiah in verse 18, which talks about Rachel, who was the mother of Israel, weeping for her children as they went into exile. And then verse 23 doesn't quote one prophet, but says that the prophets generally foretold that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And one thing that is a bit surprising to us in each of these fulfillment passages is that none of these Old Testament texts Function the same way that Isaiah 7 or Micah 5 did that we already saw. Those passages were clearly particular predictions about the Messiah. Do you remember Isaiah said that he would be born of a virgin girl and Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. Those were particular predictions about him. But none of these texts are those kinds of predictions. In fact, the first two don't even seem to be predictions at all. They're just statements in the prophets about what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. So how can Matthew say that Jesus fulfilled these verses if they are really about Israel? Is he just playing fast and loose with the text? Or is there something more going on? The key to understanding these and several other fulfillment passages in Matthew is that we need to understand that fulfillment is not just about predictions of little things here and there in the life of Jesus. The Old Testament isn't just a collection of little predictions about what the Messiah would do or what he would be like. Those are certainly there, and we've seen how important those are. They show us that this Jesus is exactly who Israel was waiting for. But the Old Testament is a story. It's a story about God and His people. It tells us about the fall of humanity and God choosing and saving a people, and then all of their ups and downs, about God's leading and their failures and their unfaithfulness to God. And so when the Messiah comes, He is not just doing tasks. He is finishing a story. We talked about this when we said that He was the offspring of Abraham and the son of David when we looked at the genealogy. You may have heard people talk about this and use this word typology. Typology says that the Old Testament has stories And it has characters within those stories. And some of those characters, those real people who existed in the time of the Old Testament, became models. They became kind of a category of person that gets filled and inhabited again and again throughout the story. And so David, when he shows up, becomes the model king for Israel. Moses is the model prophet or the prophet par excellence. Adam is the covenant head of all humanity. These are categories of people. These are models that are then filled by others who come after them and then ultimately by Jesus. And in this passage, Matthew is going to show us that those types, those models, those people are not Always just individual people. Jesus fulfills all of those roles, but a huge theme in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus fulfills the role of Israel as well, the whole people of God. Jesus walks the paths that they walked, He experiences the things that they experienced. And as we continue to see this unfold throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see that in every place that Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. The first one of these three sections, verses 13 through 15, shows us what happens with the plot of Herod. An angel of the Lord warns Joseph in a dream that Herod is going to destroy Jesus and commands Joseph to flee to Egypt. So, just like we saw before, Joseph is meticulous in his obedience to God's commands. The the language of what Joseph does is exactly the language of what the angel commands. He takes Jesus and Mary and travels to Egypt. This would have been about a 150-mile trip from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt. And the text tells us that they left at night, which means that they hurried because the threat was immediate. To Jesus, And they stayed in Egypt until Herod died. And Matthew says that this fulfills what the Lord said in Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, some of you have been in the adult Christian education class after service. We've been working through the book of Hosea. And you were in there a couple of weeks ago when we studied Hosea chapter 11. So you know that Hosea 11 doesn't sound at all like a prophecy about the Messiah. In Hosea 11, God talks about when he saved Israel out of Egypt, and then he uses the metaphor of a father teaching his young son how to walk. Hosea is picking up on Exodus 4, where God is speaking to Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. And so Matthew looks back on this little statement in Hosea. And he looks at the story of Israel as a whole. And when he sees Jesus going to Egypt and then God calling him back into Israel, he sees Jesus fulfilling the story of God's Old Testament people. Israel is God's son, his child whom he loves and protects and calls to himself. And Jesus is a type of Israel. He is God's son who walks the same path that Israel walked. Here, Matthew simply says that just as Israel was in the promised land and then left in Genesis 42 to go to Egypt because of the famine, and then God called them out of Egypt back to the promised land in the Exodus, just like that, Jesus is following that path. He's following that pattern. He's born in Israel, God sends him into Egypt, and then God calls him back out of Egypt into the land of Israel. But this is not the only geographical path that Matthew sees Jesus following Israel on. We're going to see this in the coming weeks. In chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus be baptized in the Jordan River. He passes through the water. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the Israelites were baptized in the Red Sea when they passed through the water. So Jesus is walking the same path that Israel walked. Where does Jesus go immediately after he is baptized? He goes into the wilderness. The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Do you remember how he's tempted? He's hungry because he's been fasting for 40 days and so he is tempted to make bread appear in the midst of his hunger and then he's tempted to test God and to worship someone other than God. Satan asks Jesus to worship him. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years after they passed through the Red Sea, tempted in all of those ways and failed in each one of those ways. But Jesus succeeded in all of those temptations. Then in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, what does Jesus do? He goes up on a mountain and he gives the law to his disciples, which is exactly what God did for Israel in the wilderness. He went up on Mount Sinai and gave them his law after they left Egypt and passed through the waters. Jesus is fulfilling. He's completing. He is finishing the story of all the life of Israel and all that they were called to and all that they failed in. As I said, when we looked at the genealogy, the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. And Jesus Christ is that ending. He is the completion of every loose end that the Old Testament leaves. He will be God's true and faithful son and succeed where Israel failed. That's what Matthew sees in this simple travel plan of Jesus out of Israel into Egypt, and then God calling him back into Israel. That's what we see in verses 13 through 15. In verses 16 through 18, we see a different kind of fulfillment, but this fulfillment also brings with it lamentation. Let's read these verses together again, beginning in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We now see the result of Herod's scheming from last week. He's furious when he finds out that the Magi didn't come back to him, but took another route back to their own country, because even though he pretended he would worship Jesus, his plan all along was to kill him. He wanted to destroy any threat to his power and his Authority And when he realized that he isn't going to be able to find Jesus particularly, he changes his plan. Judging from the time the star appeared, he determines how old Jesus would have been, and he kills all the baby boys two years and younger in Bethlehem. As we talk about the fulfillment of Old Testament stories and categories, it's impossible for us not to think about another king who ordered the slaughter of baby Israelite boys. Pharaoh in Exodus 1 made a similar calculation. He saw the threat of growth of Israel, and that it was a threat to his power and to his authority in Egypt. And so he he ordered that all the baby boys in Israel be killed at their birth. There too, God protected one baby boy who would be the savior of Israel. Matthew here is evoking images of of Jesus as a new Moses who will bring about a new exodus for God's people. But the quote in verse 18 isn't from the book of Exodus. It's from the prophet Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah is a prophet at the time that Judah is taken into exile in Babylon. They're removed from the promised land and driven into exile. And this quote comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Remember that Rachel was the wife of Jacob, and so as he is the father of Israel, she in some ways is the mother or one of the mothers of Israel. And the picture Jeremiah gives is of Rachel representing all Israel's mothers weeping and wailing in lamentation when Israel is carried off to exile in Babylon. But in the very next verse in Jeremiah 31, the Lord tells Rachel that she can finally stop her weeping and stop her tears because they are near to the time that God will bring his people back from exile. And so Matthew looks at this wicked Action of Herod and sees both these stories in the background. Pharaoh's slaughtering of the Hebrew boys and Israel being conquered by Babylon and drug off into exile. But both stories are tragedies right on the cusp of redemption. They call for weeping and lamentation, but the Lord promises that it will soon give way to salvation. And we need to think clearly and carefully about this as we see this story. We need to be careful not to abstract a story like this and rush past it. These are real people, real children. This actually happened. Scholars estimate that Bethlehem and the region around it at the time would probably have had a population of a little less than 1,000 people. And so based on some averages, we're able to guess that Herod would have likely killed around 15 to 20 baby boys in Bethlehem. This man is afraid that he's going to lose power at some point, and so he executes toddlers to protect it. What are we supposed to do with this? Why does Matthew include this story in his gospel? it doesn't seem like he's telling it just to give the occasion for Jesus fleeing to Egypt. He's also saying something about what the coming of Jesus would bring. We are going to see awful things in this gospel that we need to feel the weight of. We'll see demons wreaking havoc on individual people in a few places. We'll see Herod's own son behead Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, We'll see religious leaders of God's people, men respected by the community, scheme and plot to kill the Messiah. We'll see one of Jesus' best friends betray him to death. And ultimately, we'll see the Son of God falsely charged and executed upon a cross. Matthew reminds us that the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come to announce... Doesn't eradicate sorrow and suffering just yet. In some ways, it seems like the coming of Jesus actually heightens the sorrow. The serpent is backed into a corner and begins lashing out in every direction, even at children. And as Christians, we can pretend, we cannot rather pretend that this isn't true. That there is still sorrow and suffering in the world. You will sometimes hear Christians try to downplay sorrow. Someone dies and we immediately say, well, she's in a better place now. Trouble comes and we jump to God causes all things to work for good. Someone suffers and we say, rejoice in the Lord always. And what we need to see in this story and in so many places in the gospel is that the sorrow is appropriate. The loud weeping and lamentation of Rachel and all the mothers of Israel is right. Jesus will one day destroy death and wipe away all our tears, but he hasn't yet. Until then, the Apostle Paul tells us that we, Christians, are a people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As a church family, we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. There is absolutely hope and joy in the midst of our sorrow as Christians. All of those statements that we say are true. But let's be careful not to glaze over the sorrow. Let us weep, even in our sorrow, as those who have hope. This little story in the Gospel of Matthew fulfills both the lamentation and the hope for God's people in Jesus. The final section of chapter 2 ends with another statement of fulfillment. And this one is a bit trickier to understand, but it seems that Matthew is again showing that Jesus shares in the experiences of Israel. Matthew ends this section in verse 23 by saying that it was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. What's weird for us is that there isn't any statement in the Old Testament that says that someone will be called a Nazarene, or even that anyone would be from Nazareth. But notice that Matthew introduces this differently than he does the others. He doesn't say what was spoken by the prophet but spoken by the prophets, plural. So he isn't referring to a specific single statement, but an idea found in the prophets generally. And this could be a few different things, but I think the one that fits best is the connection between Jesus and the insignificance of Nazareth. Remember Nathaniel saying in John 1, when he finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was thought of to be backwoods and an insignificant place. And we know that the prophets say that the Messiah will be insignificant. Isaiah 53 particularly, Isaiah says about the Messiah, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. And so Jesus is born in the little town of Bethlehem. And after fleeing to Egypt, grows up in the backwoods, and insignificant town of Nazareth. Matthew again looks at what seems to us like a random geographical statement about where Jesus will live. And he connects it with a theological truth about Jesus and his relation to Israel. Do you remember how central Israel's insignificance was to their identity? God tells them that it should be in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to what he says to them about why he chose them. He says, beginning in verse 6, "...for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth..." But he says that they were actually the opposite. They were the fewest of all peoples. They were insignificant. They were nobodies. But the Lord set his love and his covenant upon them. Jesus is the insignificant one. He is a nobody from nowhere in the Gospels. But just like Israel, Jesus is the one chosen of God his treasured possession to accomplish his purposes and bring blessing to the whole world. That's the fulfillment aspect of this section. But this section also ties a bow on something that we've seen all through chapter two. Throughout this chapter, God the Father is continually protecting Jesus from harm. Remember that Even though Jesus is the eternal Son of God, He is also fully human. He wasn't some sort of Superman toddler. I know that it's difficult to think about this, but just like any other child, if an adult soldier would have tried to kill Jesus, he easily could have. Jesus, like all other children, was weak and vulnerable and helpless. The father knows the scheming and the wickedness of Herod. And so he warns the magi in a dream not to return to him so that Herod wouldn't know where Jesus is. He sends an angel to tell Joseph in another dream to flee to Egypt and protect Jesus. And then he sends another angel in another dream to tell Joseph it is safe to return. We see the father watching over Jesus and leading him away from danger and into safety. This reminds us of so many psalms that speak of God watching over His beloved. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Psalm 4 rests in the fact that God does not sleep or slumber in a particular way. David says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. These promises were true for Jesus in the vulnerability of his childhood. When he could not protect himself, his heavenly Father protected him. And if you are united to Jesus in faith, they are true for you too. You may sometimes not feel vulnerable or weak, but you are. The Bible tells us that we aren't just subject to physical harm and death, but also to spiritual battle raging against us. But just like Jesus, we can rest in the promise that God will protect us. Even if you are in a legitimate time of sorrow and suffering, you must know that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your heavenly Father. And so you too can say, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety." But in the midst of that protection, there's one more thing that we need to say, that we must realize about God's protection of Jesus. Because we know the end of this story. We know that God didn't protect Jesus because he didn't want any harm to come to him. He didn't whisk Jesus away to Egypt because he wouldn't let him die. No, he whisked Jesus away to Egypt because it was not time for him to die. Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The end of the story is not Jesus' protection but Jesus' death. And it is in His death that we see true lamentation and true joy come together. The Messiah, the Lord's anointed, the very Son of God, dies. There is nothing sadder in the history of the world. But we know that His death saves us from our sins. It is in His death that we see God's Sovereign hand working not to keep Jesus from harm, but to deliver him over to harm so that he might ultimately protect you and me from the suffering of sin and death and hell. There is no greater joy in the history of the world than that. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus became a human so that he might die. And he died so that you and I might know God's ultimate protection and find life in Him. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are sobered when we think not just about the sorrow that was in this world and is in this world, but when we think about the suffering that we ought to have. Lord, we thank You that Jesus took the ultimate suffering and sorrow upon himself. Not so that we might be free from suffering now, but so that we might be free from suffering for eternity. We pray that we would find our rest in him, that we would find our joy in him, that we would respond rightly and run to him for all that we need. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.